people were inspired by the challenge, which was great to see. And by the time racing came around on Saturday, Sunday, it had dried up enough to be pretty ideal East Coast conditions, you know, perfect with a touch of slick is how it works around there. So... Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 93 features Adam Craig. Adam is a legend in the sport of mountain biking on the competitive side, and now his focus has turned to trails, advocacy, and product development in an effort to make mountain biking better for everyone. We covered a lot of topics during this interview, ranging from creating an Enduro World Series venue at Sugarloaf Resort in Maine, to Adam's take on modern mountain bikes. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and taking of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Adam Craig. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have the infamous Adam Craig. Adam has done many things in the world of competitive mountain biking and cyclocross and single speeding. And I mean, shit, you were doing Super D before Enduro was cool, right? <laughs> yep. Back when, I don't know if Super D was ever cool. That's what um, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. Super D was an awesome option for a, a kind of gravity light racing format, which is ultimately what Enduro has become. So yeah, I'm glad to be participating. <laughs> yeah. Well, today we're here to talk about trails with Adam because Adam has a lot of stuff going on, especially up in the New England area in Maine, as you just got done hosting an EWS race. And there's a lot of other stuff going on prior to you doing that. And you have a role up there with, with everything going on in trails in the Carbasset Valley area. Before we get there, let's do a quick backstory. I'm fairly certain most people have heard of you, but you could maybe just do a Cliff Notes version of your uh, your backstory for the one person that may not have heard of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a mountain biker. I became a mountain biker as a kid in Maine. Just grew up in a small farming town that you know had some some ATV and logging trails in the woods, and we had a little bit of land. And yeah, there was a really great racing scene and community in Maine in the 90s um, when I was a teenager. So racing cross country and downhill and slalom as part of some state and regional series. And then eventually got on the national team and then got this job racing for Giant that uh, this is this is my 20th year being a, a racer or ambassador or general representative of Giant Bicycles. So yeah, I raced a lot of World Cups along the way, cross country, and then 
aforementioned Super D, Cyclocross. Um, was fortunate to race a good few seasons of Enduro World Series towards the end of my racing. And now I'm, yeah, trying to continue supporting mountain biking through trail advocacy and construction stewardship, just generally making sure we still have good places to ride. Well, let's talk about that and the intersection of great mountain bike trails, trail communities, but also great products. Cause you got a foot in both worlds now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun just seeing, I mean, the, the development of bikes, which we were just working on some stuff the last few days with giant contributes to the fact that we can build the kind of trails that we're building these days and also contributes to new riders having access to great equipment to, you know, enter the sport on a more welcoming fashion. So yeah, mountain biking's in a really good spot right now for a lot of reasons. You may have been partially responsible or mostly responsible for killing the front derailleur. Is that a true statement? Ooh, I mean, I think I was the first person that showed up at a World Cup, World Cup cross country with a single chain ring setup, which was in 2007, I guess, at World Cup finals in World Champs in, uh, in Scotland. And we actually had raced the single speed World Championships the weekend before and was ever so slightly born from laziness. So I already had the front derailleur and shifter off my bike and was like, how about we just do the single ring thing we've been talking about? And it was awesome. That was a great solution. And there were certainly people doing that before I was, maybe not on the World Cup level. So yeah, I'm all about having bikes be as simple and awesome as possible. And they're getting there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's go back to New England. First of all, let's go back to why you moved back there part-time because we you're in Bend right now as we're recording this. But then mm-hmm. also you, you kind of moved into a role at Sugarloaf Resort in Carbasset Valley. Like, let's talk about that transition back to New England and then transitioning into that role that you have there. Yeah. I mean, I've always loved New England. And, you know, when I got a job racing bikes, I needed to live somewhere that you could ride in, you know, ride year round. And Oregon's been great for that. But kind of my favorite riding really anywhere in the world is close to home in New England. And during the pandemic, having less events and being able to spend more time at home with my folks and realize that it'd be good to be a little closer. To them at this point. And then around that same time, getting to meet some of the current staff at Sugarloaf um, in Western Maine and realize how much passion they have for getting some gravity mountain bike access developed on their, on their mountain there. Kind of was a perfect storm to get back to Maine. And yeah, Sugarloaf offered me a, offered me a job, essentially creating trail infrastructure to support events. And that's going to, you know, grow into a even more of a position in the future. So it's been really fun to have that opportunity and really just yeah, great to be back home because the riding's awesome and the community is so genuine and is also growing. Before you started working at, at uh, Sugarloaf, you were also doing some building, if I did my research right, prior to that, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, since stepping away from racing in, I guess, what, 2017, I've put a lot of effort into a lot of volunteer trail stewardship you know, working with nonprofit events out here in the West on public lands, and then started to be involved in some professional work with some grant funded projects, you know, for the Forest Service out here in Oregon, and took that experience back to Maine and started getting involved with, uh, you know, a handful of projects around Maine on public access as well, down near the coast. So yeah, kind of getting getting things going, but certainly the job at Sugarloaf's the first time I've been, you know, (laughs) all day, all season, digging trail, which is such an awesome opportunity. 
Yeah. And with that, you just held an EWS back in August. We did. Yeah. I can't believe we actually did that, but we did it. <laughs> Let's talk about pre EWS, like what it took to one, get, you know, get buy-in from Sugarloaf, but then also to, you know, cause EWS is, is legit worldwide. I mean, we are only seeing like for 2023, it looks like there's only one stop in North America altogether, you know? So what did it mm-hmm. take to get on the front end to get the EWS there? And what kind of prep work did you have to do for the site and for it to be EWS worthy as far as like what they were looking for on their end to host a host an event? Definitely a lot of factors conspired. A big one is Sugarloaf just has a real passion for having high level sporting events. They've always, you know, we have a really good history of having you know, national, international, alpine and Nordic skiing competitions. I mean, that's something that the community really rallies around. And it's a, it's a big hill that has its, you know, it's a world-class hill. So there's a culture that was present there already. And then me arriving with the experience and connections to make trails happen and then being very behind that effort. And we were developing just to have an event for an Eastern States Cup for the regional gravity series, which is a really healthy, awesome race scene that travels all around the Northeast with a really yeah, just a great family of riders and event staff. And then once that was happening, we had the opportunity to bid on having an EWS in this season to kind of support the Burke Vermont World Series round as well, which was already on the calendar and worked out really well because we were able to support each other, you know, behind the scenes quite a bit with just, you know, the undertaking that is putting on a, an international level event. So that was kind of the, how it came about was just to have two events in New England. And it's, you know, been a personal ambition of mine for years to get, you know, EWS racing to the Northeast because I think the riding is as good as anywhere. And I think, yeah, people certainly left understanding that, which is awesome. And then it just was a matter of literally having zero trails for, you know, that were, or zero racetracks. There's great riding in the Carabasso Valley region that, you know, the town and Nemba trail crews have done an awesome job on, but we needed some racetracks. So it was just a matter of, you know, wandering around on the mountain and figuring out where we could put in a half a dozen race courses and getting that done in basically two pretty darn short build seasons. <laughs> um, it's kind of like a June, June to October season in Western Maine. So yeah, it's been a really, really neat process. And so thankful for all the people that volunteered and helped out in the first season um, and also this year. And then, you know, Sugarloaf to, for just giving us a chance and giving us some resources this year to have a, a modest trail crew and make it happen. <laughs> you didn't have any racetracks prior to 2021 at all? Really? Nope. Yep. There was nothing there. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we worked hard and we worked fast and we're still working. <laughs> So what was the reception or how do you think, you know, how'd the race go? I know, obviously, you know, you pointed out that it was back to back with, with Burke and it was awesome to see that back to back thing. I think that's really good when you can get races like that because it cuts down on a lot of stuff and get, you get economies of scale with that. But how did, how was the reception of it? And what do the racers think? Um, people had a good time. Yeah. People were stoked. I mean, you never really know how it's going to go, but I mean, I'm, you know, fortunate to have traveled around to a bunch of races and you know, you can, when you show up, you kind of get a vibe of, you know, what, what the tracks are like pretty quick. And if, if someone who cares and appreciates the nuances behind the scenes, then it shows. And yeah, people are stoked. I mean, we had a Nor'easter, like we had our first big 
rainstorm of the year, basically, on Wednesday. We got like two inches of rain in 24 hours. Things were real wet on the first practice day and people were all very challenged, shall we say. Um, Just, you know, steep, rugged, raw, rocky, rooty, slippery tracks in the wet (laughs) is a thing that happens around the world, basically. But people were inspired by the challenge, which was great to see. And by the time racing came around on Saturday, Sunday, it had dried up enough to be pretty ideal East Coast conditions, you know, perfect with a touch of slick is how it works around there. So yeah, the feedback from riders was basically either this is pretty hard or this is awesome. And it was mostly this is awesome. So we were really thrilled to have that reception. And it just yeah, spoke to the work that we've been able to do with the community and with our scrappy little trail crew and mountain ops. And yeah, it's really, I was glad to get good feedback. And the same for Burke, you know, Burke is a different type of terrain. And I think they're really complimentary and it was cool to have kind of older, more rugged in your face trails there. And also some really fun bike park stuff that's actually been built to, you know, complement our just, yeah, raw brand new stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that just, you just spurred a thought in my brain. So when you were, when you were putting this together, obviously, you know, you, you've raced a bunch of EWS races and you have a certain canvas that you can work with, right? With that, was there certain aspects that you tried to incorporate into your build that you wanted to see as part of your race courses that you'd maybe taken from other inspiration from other places? Yeah, definitely. There was, I've really vivid memories of a EWS we had in Ireland, um, like in maybe 2014 or something pretty early. It was a teeny little hill or a modest hill. It was like 900 vertical feet in Wicklow. And the tracks were just all hand-built and the turns were all pretty round. I mean, there was, you know, tight, weird, rocky, janky stuff where there needed to be. But ultimately, the builders, like, tried to keep momentum going for the riders and, like, build little features here or there. You know, a catch here, a lip there, landing here, whatever it kind of needs to be, rock structures. But just kind of keep the momentum going. You know, the bikes work well and they keep moving. And we race a lot of really janky, weird, tight, switchbacky stuff in Europe. And that's great. Like, I love that kind of racing. But if you're, if you're building tracks for gravity racing, you might as well try to keep momentum going. So yeah, just trying to have round turns and, you know, make good sight lines and make it so that people could ride pretty well with limited practice. Yeah, I think, I think that worked out. <laughs> and lots of fun high-speed ski run stuff because we didn't have time to build that many trails. <laughs> Well, when I was doing some research for this, based on what I found on Sugarloaf, specific to this, it looks like Sugarloaf has some pretty ambitious plans, and they have a uh, 2030 development plan. Hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit and what you know about that and what the future might look like there. Yeah, so our parent company, Boyne Resorts, which owns like a dozen-ish kind of mid-sized ski resorts around the United States is investing in their properties these days. So at Sugarloaf, that looks like a pretty major lift ski terrain and real estate development that's happening. And, you know, knowing the kind of the reality of the summer recreation business and the fact that mountain biking is good business for ski resorts these days, they're interested in committing resources to that. And that was a plan that was already kind of taking shape or at least being, you know, expressed kind of as I came into the fold. So it was great timing that I'm able to, you know, be president at Sugarloaf and help drive that development from the mountain bike side. 
so yeah, we had to, we had to buy lift racks or bike racks for our high speed lift for the EWS. And we're going to use those as soon as we can to have a bike park that's going to be open on the east side of the mountain. Ideally kind of by fall of 23, like we're not hosting an EWS this coming season, which will give us time to pivot to developing riding for all ability levels. You know, we're kind of a double black only right now, a couple little blacks on the lower mountain, but ultimately not a, not a learn to ride gravity kind of experience. And I'm stoked that, yeah, we're in a, in a capital request process right now and also permitting to be ready to be digging next spring on some beginner and intermediate trail and build some berms and some jump lines and, you know, have a, have a multi-phased process for the coming years to develop what will be a, you know, gravity riding destination that will connect perfectly to the endurance riding destination that Carabasset Valley already is thanks to the work of the, you know, town trail crew and Nemba chapter there. So yeah, that's, that's the plan. We're going to staff up and build a bike park. So if anybody wants a job, call us up. (laughs) (laughs) With that, do you got, is is part of that plan also include rentals and service and and all the things you see with other bike parks these days? Absolutely. I was just doing some research this morning on, yeah, kind of our rental fleet needs and projected costs and whatnot as we continue to develop this business plan. Um, so yeah, where I mean, Sugarloaf does great in the winter with our, you know, learn to ski and ride programs. And that's really a big part of what makes a successful business. And to me, it's a big part of my passion for mountain biking is like giving people, especially people from Maine, which, you know, Maine's a pretty modest, small state with a modest economy. And if we can, you know, expose local youth and adults and whoever to gravity riding and get them stoked on biking, then that's great. So we're, yeah, absolutely committed to building up from that. And we're just lucky to already have a bunch of racetracks on the hill so that experts can already be entertained and that, you know, the newer riders can have something really visibly to aspire to. So yeah, we're, we're stoked to have the full menu of offerings and get more people on bikes. I'm not going to say you're old because you're younger than me. <laughs> You've seen our, our sport or our activity really grow from, you know, back in the day, downhill racing was, I mean, really back in the day, downhill racing was lift access, but fire road, right? Yeah. Totally. And then we kind of transitioned into this whole, like, you know, Whistler came on board, like Highland came on board, but you know, what are your thoughts on this whole new era of mountain biking where bike parks are actually be taking, being taken seriously and for good reason, because they're actually providing good economic value for the businesses themselves behind them and for the community. Yeah, I think it's a really great time. And, you know, especially in New England where we have such great conditions, you know, in the West trying to keep a bike park running, it's just like piling dust on sand all summer. And, you know, the sprinklers come on every couple of days just from mother nature in New England, we've got great soil and, you know, the, you mentioned Highland trails is we're actually using them as a consultant to help us, you know, develop our kind of our master plan for the actual bike park. And then they'll help train our crew, which will save, you know, us a ton of time and a ton of cost just to have access to their regional expertise in developing, you know, both the, both the trails and the business. And yeah, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And more and more people as the bikes have gotten better, you know, the biking experience is a lot closer to the skiing experience or snowboarding experience that all of our winter customers cherish. You know, they're all there because it's exciting and fun. You go up the lift and come back down and win in your face and danger around every corner or whatever it is, you know, excitement abounds. 
So there's a lot more connection to that crossover athlete from winter sports. And yeah, we've got a, got a great position to be in it's and just got the kids like here and Ben, you know, my bachelor has been gravity access for, I think seven or eight years now. And gosh, the, in like the last five years, it started to just be like kids having access to those resources. They're so, so skilled on their bikes now. And it, we're just, just seeing the beginning of that next generation. So yeah, it's, it's a good time for sure. <laughs> yeah. It'll be interesting to see how things are in the next 10 to 15 years as these kids become young adults and what is actually happening, right? Yeah, for sure. It's a new landscape. We barely had places to put dirt jumps in or even ride our bikes. Now it's obviously what you're talking about in Bend and what you're talking about in New England, but then you got the mountain bike capital of the world, Bentonville. <laughs> yeah. You totally. know, and which is another amazing example of just connecting the community to this type of recreation which is a fun, engaging type of recreation. Let's talk about New England in general. New England as, an, as a region is something I've really liked to hit on with this podcast because it's you guys seem to be so far ahead of the curve in terms of access. And I know every place has their access issues and whatnot, but New England especially, and Vermont really, and we're, obviously you're talking about Maine, but in Vermont, there's just a ton of access on private land. You know, let's talk about that, that New England experience through your eyes and how, you know, how you feel it is, especially now that you're spending a lot more time there again. Yeah. It's, I just was, you know, re-exposed to, I mean, I'm kind of almost new in New England and like the modern mountain biking era. And it's so heartwarming to see the, we have such a good combination of access with, you know, state and town land, um, especially town land that's managed a lot more flexibly than federal land in the West. And then so many land trusts that are, you know, essentially private land, but that's functioning as public access and land trusts all seem to be really open to developing recreational resources for pedestrians in general, whether it's, you know, cyclists or folks on foot during the winter for winter recreation. And then we have all these ski resorts that are essentially private land rather than, you know, in the West, everything's federal land leases for the most part. So we're just in a position to have more access. And I think that like, underlying reason for that is that there's just been people in New England for so much longer. It's kind of like Europe almost and that there's just, there's population everywhere. And because of that, people are a little bit more used to sharing resources, especially when they see the, the common good of that, you know, in the case of, you know, growing recreation in the form of mountain biking. So yeah, I'm really appreciative of, you know, the work that, you know, New England Mountain Bike Association does to connect all of those landowners and land trusts and municipal land holdings. And then obviously the Vermont Mountain Bike Association does, you know, a, a really Vermont focused version of that same work. And then all the volunteers. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a really good, good combination. And like I was saying earlier, the terrain is just sweet. You know, it's like the hills aren't that big and the dirt's great and the forest is usable. So yeah, it's, it's a good time in New England. Yeah. And you can breathe. And you can breathe. Yep. You're not starting out at 10,000 feet. Yeah, but my don't necessarily move to New England disclaimer um, if you're into fat biking, because that's all you can do all winter while it's raining on the snow that you thought was falling. And then it's really cold until it tries to snow again, but then it rains and then your studs wear out on your fat bike and they're expensive. And New England's never going to be totally overrun with people because the winter there keeps you modest for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I can totally appreciate all those comments coming from the upper Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the not a lot different. It's a, 
Yeah, totally. All good. And I think there's almost maybe a little bit there that kind of like helps with land access because it, it is so seasonal that, you know, these places that are quite busy with biking in the, you know, specific high season summer months are much quieter in the spring and fall. And then the user group doesn't exist in the winter. So I think that kind of can help. Staying in New England, I believe you were just participating in an event called Trans New England. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just going to mention that in our last piece there. Um, yeah. Trans New England is um, so glad that Peter and the kind of just New England family have been able to get that blind enduro version of racing to New England because, again, we've got a bunch of great riding and it's awesome to bring people from afar and expose them to that. Yeah. People had such a great time. So, Trans, yeah, Trans New England's a five day enduro race where it's five different locations. So, we were in Woodstock, Vermont, day one, Bolton, Vermont, day two, then Adatash, New Hampshire, day three, and then Day four was at Mount Abrams in Maine, and day five was at Sugarloaf. So yeah, seeing just the diversity of trail networks and experiences. Day one in Woodstock was really awesome. Like, yeah, being in just kind of a, a town network that was on a modest hill and had such great riding. It was a great warm-up. And then all the old school NAR that we have, we did kind of agree that we need to get a little bit more of a, you know, the blind enduro format is typically you know, Transprovence is the granddaddy of all that and like actually travels point to point. So we want to continue to explore and work out what, you know, multi-use longer distance trails we can actually get some racing in that isn't just at a bike park, essentially. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great just seeing the community support for all these, all the venues and people really having such a good time and surviving, which is great. The riding's challenging. So we didn't really have any issues. <laughs> For those that not familiar with that format of racing, I think a lot of people are familiar with the standard, like the EWS format or even like regional enduro races where you can pre-ride, you know, the day before. Let's talk about that blind format and how that's set up. Inevitably, somebody has to actually set the course, right? Or tape the course or how do you guys, like, how's all that work? Maybe there is no, maybe there is no course tape, but there's, you know, obviously you have to go from one point to another. No, there's, there's marking. Yeah. So, I mean, the courses are definitely lightly marked and, you know, the, I, yeah, blind adora racing is, is a format that I'm personally really passionate about. It's the only, I don't race much these days. And if I do any racing, it's probably going to be a blind enduro race somewhere that I haven't been before. Cause I just really appreciate the, you know, oftentimes when you, when you ride a trail for the first time, you can typically ride it quite well and quite confidently, but it's not, a hundred percent commitment kind of thing. Like you just ride what you see. And if you can't see over a crest or around a corner, you got to kind of slow down and figure it out. Yeah. Some blue Shimano ribbon, you know, which way it's pointing you. So yeah, we basically just kind of hang ribbon in trees and at intersections and yeah, stuff's pretty darn lightly marked, but keep people on the trails and, you know, keep, keep your eyes up. And there's something about that. Just seeing a, seeing a trail for the first time at speed that I find really inspiring. And it's, less you know someone's certainly going to win and people are definitely riding fast but it's not 100 percent about the pace it's more about just seeing the riding and experiencing the the culture in the region and you can still go plenty fast so <laughs> at that particular event how far between the venues was it and how are how do the how are the accommodations set up or that are you guys i know initially it was camping are you guys still camping um yeah so this year just kind of the way it worked out we're traveling. We've got like, you know, a couple of big vans and then a couple of box trucks to bring bikes and gear and mostly camping. We camped the first couple of nights 
and then but basically you know at a kind of ski resort base area so you know with access to bathrooms and base lodge and that kind of thing so kind of comfy camping everything's catered so yeah we everybody gets fed and taken around and it's kind of it's like a couple hours from place to place so we'll get a good solid full day of riding in and then go to the next place or wake up somewhere and then you know transition in the morning we did have two nights in condos at Atatash in new hampshire which was awesome just midweek to be able to do laundry and get a little bit maybe a little better rest or whatever that also was the most fun day of riding in my opinion gosh those old we still Atatash has a bunch of like old downhill tracks that have been there since the 90s and haven't really seen much use. Um, so they're in really nice shape. <laughs> um, and we use them as amazing. So yeah, basically just kind of convoy cruising around from from place to place and camping at the trailhead and racing from there. Well, speaking of communities, this is a question I ask everybody. In your opinion, what makes a great trail community or what are the things that you look for that kind of highlight what a great trail community is for you? I like to see a well-attended group ride. That's kind of my, my metric of a, of a community, like wherever it is, whether it's a shop or a club or, you know, most places have a, have a good solid mountain bike group ride. That's a, a no drop thing that people can just come hang out and enjoy themselves. Um, Carabasic Valley's got a great Tuesday night ride that one of the local trail crew members, Spencer leads really perfectly. And I think that's a, that's a great example of, you know, someone who's involved in creating the resources is also they're enjoying them and sharing them. You didn't answer it the way that people used to answer it, which I've trended away from that now, but you, it used to be a great microbrewery. Yeah, that's actually, that's a sign of, a sign of potential decline to me is uh, <laughs> basically if your town has a ski area and a microbrewery, probably the local labor force is about to get priced out of the housing market, <laughs> which is not a great thing. So yeah, we're, yeah. we're trying. More recently though, the answers have been about communities and how strong the community is based on the people in the community, which has been a really good trend to pick up on here. And so I'm glad it's, it's making that turn. Cause I used to say wood fired pizza. Like if you don't got wood fired pizza, you're not a community. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Our restaurants are all pretty much closed anyway, so. <laughs> well, with that, do you have, well, I, wanna, I do want to, I do have some bike related questions. Let's go to that first. So as we've already talked about, you've, you've seen a lot of innovation within the bike industry. How, how are you, how are you looking at that innovation now and kind of what, like where we're at with the evolution of, of bikes today, you know, cause we've seen things go longer, lower, slacker. I brought this up during my interview with Drew Rohde and, and he actually, uh, he actually talked about it as being kind of polarizing, you know, which was an interesting way of looking at it. Cause it was the way I didn't look at it before, but let's get your thoughts on like the way bike geometry and all that has gone. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think about it as like mountain biking is still a relatively new sport. Like, I mean, and the bikes essentially were without much question were road bike geometry until kind of the mid late nineties. And then downhill bikes started to depart from that a bit as suspension travel and speed went up. And really now we're just kind of getting back to where downhill bikes were at the turn of the century, essentially is, you know, things aren't that different from there with the modern trail bike, which just acknowledges that the fun part about mountain biking is the gravity part. 
and the uphill part's always going to be a challenge. So, and then, you know, grew up riding dirt bikes and still ride off-road motorcycles a bunch and enjoy that. And like, nobody knows what the head angle is on their dirt bike. No one even knows how much suspension travel it has. It's just a dirt bike. You know what size the engine is, you know what color it is, you know, some other nuances, marketing messages, whatever that make you passionate to select that particular bike. But, and I think mountain bikes are kind of getting there where it's just like the, you know, there's a couple of different segments of bikes that's the geometry is a bit different, but really it's kind of only cross country bikes. And then the rest is just a matter of the amount of travel that you have, which is great to me, you know, despite being an employee of the bike industry and proud to be in that position and be contributing, contributing to the ongoing development and improvement of bikes, like geometry is kind of leveling off and technology is the rear derailleur, which is, was patented in the 1960s for road bikes. We're not there anymore. Still needs to be addressed, but otherwise the bikes are pretty close to where they need to be, which is awesome because it means that a high school kid on his dishwashing salary or tip money or whatever can get a used bike that's five years old right now and have that still be a pretty darn sweet, pretty legit bike that will not impede that person from developing their skills or experience whatsoever. And, you know, the used today's bikes that are going to be used bikes in a few years are just that little bit more better. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think bikes are in a good spot. And I also just acknowledge that we're always going to keep improving them because that's how the world goes around. <laughs> Yeah. Is there anything you're looking for in far, as far as characteristics when you're, you know, maybe testing a new product or maybe in, in the development side of things? I'm really looking at how suspension is working, just like how the bike maps and tracks the ground and how that's balanced with the bike being energetic and lively and like really inspiring me to move it around. So yeah, I just want a bike to be intuitive and lively and really be ridden with your feet. And I think that's a big part of how the geometry has changed from, you know, you old bikes, you rode with handlebars and new bikes, you ride with your feet and our legs are a lot stronger. So as long as the, the sensation that I'm getting from the rear suspension tune, like gives me confidence to really push on the bike with my feet. I'm pretty darn happy with it. Obviously don't get a flat tire. I like things to not be that stiff. Like you know, a 36 mil stanchion fork is fine for me. And, you know, an aluminum frame and aluminum wheels over a carbon frame and wheels, I'm fine with that. Like in rough terrain, there's, there's some advantage there. Or just maybe I'm just getting old and don't want to be rattled around. But yeah, I want, I want a bike to be, yeah, just a live feeling. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, I think you're starting to see aluminum come back more and I'm not sure why that is. It might be a manufacturing side of things, but I just, you know, I just saw yesterday common saw has got a cross country bike coming out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's aluminum, which is awesome. It's aluminum. Yeah. 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 Carbon bikes are great. Aluminum bikes are great too. So it all works. I'm getting a, getting a build finished on an aluminum transex right now going 27.5, going back to the, to the little wheels or the midsize wheels. See what that's like. <laughs> Should be good. Yeah. Well, at one point giant was only 27.5, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, that was a fine time. I mean, I, I like my big wheels without a doubt, but it'll be fun to spend some time on this thing. Well, this is a question that came, I have a, a trail building friend who every now and then will shoot me stuff. And he told me I should start ask, asking my guests basically what, you know, if they're going out for a ride, what are they, what are they going out to do? Are they going out for a more gravity ride? Or are you going out for more of a adventure ride? Or what's your, like, if you got the day off clean slate, no agenda, you know, this is what I can do today. Um, 
yeah, if that's my day, I'll plan on carrying my bike some. I like to carry it. And then that usually, yeah, I think adventure gravity might be exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> and it is. And that's been a neat thing to try to explore around New England. And something I definitely miss about the West is just like going on a long ride in, you know, a remote place that has really great descending that I ideally haven't done before, or it's been long enough that I don't really remember every inch. So yeah, an, an ideal ride for me is unfamiliar and adventuresome, but with uh, with some definite gravity-fed enjoyment. Ooh, and it could probably be an out and back. Ideally, it'd be an out and back. The loops are kind of, you never know what's coming and it's always like, oh, what's happening next? How am I going to loop this out? So I just let all that go and out and backs. Do you like that experience in terms of like riding everything you rode the other way just to see how, if it rides better one way or the other? Yeah, for sure. And yeah, you see it, you know I mean? You're pushing up or riding up a climb and knowing you're coming back down later, you can kind of pick out a few little things and then <laughs> miss them or whatever happens. Um, so yeah, I really do. And it's, it's just been kind of an ongoing joke that developed with a buddy of mine, Sage, who lives here in Bend and, you know, some places we ride, it just doesn't really make sense to do loops or it's not an option. And those are places that you typically don't really see many riders. And it's just kind of become a running joke that, you know, we, we only do out and backs. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, before we wrap this thing up, a lot of the listeners of this of this show are trail builders and trail and trail advocates and and people are really trying to further trails within their community. What do you have for advice for those people? Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on some Paul Thomasberg wisdom here for people who don't know who Thomasberg is, which is probably most people. He was mountain bike call famer, raced a lot in the nineties, um, is responsible for a lot of the developments that Shimano has made over the years as a skunk rider for the last 25 years and he's who i've learned a lot about trail building from he works here in uh in oregon doing a bunch of stuff and he always tells me to think like water in two ways one how are you going to deal with drainage which is kind of all that matters in your trail staying decent and then two just like thinking about a flowing line like how water would move through the landscape or what just what the smoothest line would be so yeah just always having and and at Sugarloaf for this project, it's been a challenge because knowing, seeing the wisdom that Paul has passed on in that, and knowing that your trails, like bikers kind of ruin trails and horses kind of ruin trails and dirt bikes kind of ruin trails, but really it's water that damages trails. So just keeping the water off your trails. And that's what we've been doing at Sugarloaf is we're hustling a bit hard to do like really proper drainage in the lead up to the EWS. Did what we had to do, but now, since the race, we've just have been going back over all the racetracks and like spending the time to put in meaningful drainage structures to keep the water off the trail and ideally keep the trails nice. And I'm excited to see if we can even do it because, you know, fall line tracks and high gradient tracks are just hard to manage from a water perspective or from a drainage perspective. So I'm interested to see if we can <laughs> remain focused enough. So I don't know. I think every... Every community should have trail work days that are exclusively focused on cleaning drains just because it helps the riders be aware of the most important part of taking care of your trails. And it's not about keeping us from having to ride through puddles. It's from keeping the, you know, mother nature from taking our organics and putting them back in the ocean. (laughs) So yeah, drainage days. We're going to, we're not raking our trails, but we're going to rake our drains this fall. That's going to be some volunteer days we do. And yeah. Keep it flowing. 
Well, and I suppose with that nor'easter that blew through just before the event, and then you throw an event on those trails, you probably got some good, probably were able to go back and look at those trails afterwards and see, see where you could make some improvements. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, yeah, it's good that we, we ran around and did some like emergency drain triaging that day, but it just kind of was what it was. And then, yeah, you go back and stuff gets, yeah, racing is hard on trails, but if they're, if they got good bones, you can put them back together pretty easily. So we're hopeful that that will continue. <laughs> well, Adam, do you have any uh, closing comments or anyone you'd like to thank throughout your, you know, the people you work for, sponsors, whatever you got right now, you know, for support? Yeah. I mean, shoot everyone from, yeah, my, it's been fun seeing my first coach and team, team sponsor, Bo Lambert in Maine and having him come help out at Sugarloaf and race the races. And he's doing really great with a nonprofit called the First Push Syndicate. That's really about getting kids in the outdoors on, you know, whether it's on skateboards or bikes or trail stewardship, anything. So Bo's doing great. Definitely Sugarloaf. I mean, just the, you know, management at Sugarloaf. Thanks for the chance. (laughs) And, you know, our event staff, amazing that we were able to put on these events, having little mountain bike event experience amongst us, you know, just the, yeah, all the mountain operations team and all the volunteers that helped us dig days and volunteer course marshals. And certainly the town of Carabasa Valley trail crew is like really responsible for developing the mountain bike culture in our region that enabled us to do this at Sugarloaf. You know, if there was no mountain biking happening there, we wouldn't be talking about this right now. And giant for keeping me going, believing in life after racing. <laughs> um, and Rafa as well. Rafa has been a really great partner the last couple of years, just supporting trail advocacy and making great gear. We've got a new rain jacket. So that's right on time. <laughs> and just mountain bikers. Mountain biking's awesome. So it wouldn't happen without people doing it. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for your time today. It's a good, good conversation to be able to share. Well, I appreciate you taking some, carving out some time out of your busy schedule because you're obviously traveling a lot and you got a lot going on between photo shoots and videos and racing and running races and all the things that come with the life of Adam Craig. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a full life. Glad to have the opportunities. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.